Good morning. Thank you, Daniel, for taking that song and uh, bringing it out, despite the fact that it was a new thing to learn as a team and for the church. Um, and I just love the Apostles' Creed, and uh, to put it into a song, I think, is a valuable way for us to just stop and reflect on what it is that uh, we as Christians believe. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, tying in very directly with what it is I want to speak about this morning. Why don't, we, why don't we open with a word of prayer, and then we can dive on in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we were able to just celebrate, that you are the almighty maker of heaven and earth, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin, to, to live the perfect life, to die as our, as our sacrifice, and, uh, and Father, uh, to rise him again to new life, uh, to show us the path through death and sin and reconciliation with you. And Father, that you give us your Holy Spirit and bind us together as a church, um, that we might live rightly uh, in obedience to you, Father, uh, empowered by your Holy Spirit. And, and Father, as we, as we turn into your word this morning and consider more deeply some of the realities that uh, go on in our life and how we relate to you, I just ask that uh, all of these elements of your story would underpin everything that we do and that you would be creating us more and more in your image in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So after spending the spring looking at First Peter and uh, some practical advice on how we can share our faith relationally, we are beginning our new summer series, uh, which Brent has been working on with a team of different people, and uh, we've got kind of a funny title for it. Jesus said what? And the series premise is that we're going to have a series of one-off sermons with a range of different speakers, all of which are centered on Jesus' teaching. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to start off this series with a teaching that I think cuts right to the heart of what Jesus' purpose was, and as such, what we can look forward to in the series, because I really think what we're, we're learning about today underpins all of what Jesus does and says, and, and thus we're able to kind of dwell more deeply on that. Um, uh, but before I go there, I do want to zoom out a little bit, kind of like that song was doing just now, and make sure that we place what Jesus says and is doing, what Jesus' own mission is, within the broader narrative of Scripture, because I think Jesus really understood what the broader narrative of Scripture was and, and uh, was very intentional about placing himself within that. And so uh, we recognize that the Bible begins with God creating human beings as his perfect representatives and caretakers of the world. And this is, this is what God does, is makes a good world and places us in it, and that we lived in fellowship with him and with each other and with the world. Um, but then rather than trusting and obeying God, people became afraid that God was holding out on, him, uh, on them and sought to assert control over their lives against God's will. And so the problem is that since God is our creator and our source of life, those human beings cut themselves off from that source of life. They were turning against the one being that mattered most of all. And we see that God could have rightly abandoned us to an existence without him, but instead chose to forgive us and to call us back into a relationship with him. He did this by sending his son, Jesus, to die a criminal's death and then raising him to new life to show that only he has the power to overcome our failure and its consequences. Then the Bible closes with a vision of the future that Jesus' resurrection foreshadows, where people are raised from the dead and are able once again to experience life with God in a renewed world. At the heart of this vision is the promise that as with the beginning of the story, God will live among people and remove any of their pain and suffering uh, that they've gone through in this life. Here we have a really important detail that the thing that makes the original world that God created good and the thing that makes God's future new earth good, the thing that's most important is the presence of God. 
Right? And this is, this is what I want to really emphasize here, is that this whole narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration, this whole narrative really is about God's presence being with us as people, and the fact that we've been separated from that presence, but that he makes it possible for us to be reunited with him and to experience his presence again. And, and Christians have this term they like to use, the gospel, and it's, a, it's really an old English rendition of a Greek word that just means good news. What is it that Christians believe is good news? It's exactly this, that life with God is possible because of Jesus. That was his mission, as I believe the passage today reveals to us. So we're going to look at John 17, verse 3, and, and see what it is that Jesus says about this idea of God's presence and how his mission fits in with that. So, so John 17, verses 1 to 5, says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he's finished some teaching with his disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." So you see here, I put it in bold. I see we're kind of fuzzy up here too. Um, this, this verse 3 of this passage, the center of it, is this statement that Jesus makes. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, I, I don't know about you, but this idea of eternal life, we talk a lot about it in the church. But often, I think we detach it from this idea of God's presence and knowing God, that we tend to think about it as kind of like a nice thing that we get to experience once we're dead, and we go to this nice place where we, we get to have a nicer life than we've had in this world, right? And, and, and in our popular representation, that often takes a very cheesy format, where, where you get, you know, the Philadelphia cream cheese angel sitting up on a cloud and looking all nice and happy, right? And, and obviously, we all know that's just a character. None of us here, hopefully, has this image of heaven. But at the same time, I think we tend to think of it primarily as kind of that nice, serene life we get to experience. And yet here, Jesus challenges that. And he says, actually, what eternal life is, is knowing God. And actually, knowing God as revealed through Jesus, right? That's the heart of Jesus' ministry is I've come to show people what God is like. I've come so that people can know God, right? And so this gives us this sense that, that really the heart of the gospel, again, is this understanding we can experience life with God. We can know God himself. And that this is something that plays out in the past, Jesus has done everything that's necessary for us to experience life with God. It has a future sense, like we touched on in the Bible passage and in the creed, that because of what Jesus has done, we can experience eternal life with God in the future, right? That we get to spend eternity with him in the future. But I would argue it also means because of what Jesus has done, we can experience life with God now, Right? And I think this is very important because if our image of eternal life is simply being in a nice, serene place, 
away from some of the difficulties of this world, then we're always waiting, right? Okay, okay, we'll get there eventually. I just have to kind of plow through right now, get past this moment, get past this life, get, get to that place eventually, right? But I, I don't think that's the hope that Jesus came to give us. I think the hope that Jesus came to give us was that we can experience the heart of eternal life here and now, which is knowing God, right? That, that Jesus is trying to show us that if you have God in your life, if he is present in your story, if you really truly know God, then this life can be flavored by God's kingdom, by the qualities of that eternal life, right? Now, no, don't get me wrong. Of course, we all long for that day when that will be made perfect, that we get to see God face to face, that he'll be walking among us again, that, that image in Revelations where he's wiping away our tears. That, I mean, I'm excited for that day, right? So don't hear me saying, oh, forget about the future tense of this. No, of course not. But what I am saying is that we do not want to downplay the fact that we can really experience what Jesus came to fulfill here and now. We can know God. Jesus has made it possible for us to experience that now. Now, when it comes to this idea of knowing God, I think it's helpful to dig in a little bit. What does that mean? What does that look like for us? And, and the word that's in here that, that they give us in the Greek is genosko, which, which I'm not a Greek specialist, but looking it up, and seeing exactly what that means, what it's talking about is, a, is, is not just like a passing knowledge. It's talking about a full knowledge. That this is what Jesus came to give us, is, is a complete knowledge of God. And I think that entails the fact that in Jesus Christ, we have the best and most perfect picture of God that we could possibly have. Right? So there's a, in Jesus' life, we have a full portrait of God. That there's nothing you can really add to what Jesus did to understand God's nature and character. Right? That, that Jesus is the perfect representation. So that's knowing God fully. Right? Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. But alongside that, I think it, it indicates that on our side, we can have a depth of knowledge that's pretty significant here. Or that we can know God in a deep way, not just in a shallow way. It's not like we just get to, you know, read the Bible and have this passing idea of, okay, yeah, yeah, I kind of I have read this story the same way that I've read a story about anybody else, and I, I guess I kind of sort of know him. No, there's this idea that we get to really, truly know God, that it can consume our very minds. And to understand this, I find it helpful to actually consider what is it that goes on in our mind? If we're going to talk about this idea of knowing God, I think it's helpful to understand, well, there's, there's different facets of this. In fact, people will say that there's actually four different real facets of, of our minds, four different elements of what our minds do, and I think all of them ultimately play into this idea of knowing God. All of them have a role to play in what it means to know God fully, the way that Jesus is indicating here. The four facets of the mind are knowledge, memory, reasoning, and imagination. I'll repeat that. Knowledge, memory, reasoning, and imagination. And I think that, that each of these plays an important role in what it means to know God, and I think can help guide us in how we can know God more deeply based on the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to consider each of those briefly, to look at what it means to know God and what it requires of us. Now, the first facet of the mind, this idea of knowledge, is really referring to the accumulation of something, right? That, that, that over time, we accumulate informa information about someone or something. Now, now, I think there's a false caricature of knowledge that comes up, 
where you can, you can think of like the, the, the distanced accountant knowing the numbers that they're dealing with. Or the lawyer who just knows the law inside and out and uses it to punish somebody who might be innocent, but he can find that loophole, right? There is a kind of a cold, distanced, objective knowledge. I don't think that's what we need to understand about knowledge. Knowledge is actually a deeply intimate thing. It is an invested thing. We, we tend to accumulate knowledge, not because of the fact that we just like accumulating knowledge, but because we care about something or someone, right? Just... Just, just imagine your relationship with your spouse, if you have one, or more, maybe your family members, your siblings, or your parents, right? And the idea that it is actually really wonderful to learn new things about them. Not because of the fact that we want to win a trivia competition, but because understanding new things about the people we care about actually helps us connect more deeply with them. Right? And, and you hear this among married couples who have been married for a very long time. They will talk about the fact that 40, 50, 60 years into this marriage, I'm still learning new things about my spouse, right? That's not, that's not the same thing as a lawyer who knows the law, right? And is very distant and cold and impersonal. Well, this is an engaged sort of knowledge. And I think this is something all of us need. We need to learn new things and accumulate knowledge about the things and the people that we care about. And how do we get there? How do we actually get to the point of, of having knowledge about anyone or anything or God himself? Well, the answer is Study. This is not a nice, fun word, but it is a, a, something we cannot pass by. That study is an important discipline if we are really going to accumulate knowledge about that which we care about. Now, one of my favorite literary characters, and, and really one of the most loved literary characters of all time, is Sherlock Holmes. Right? Most of us are familiar with him. And what makes Sherlock Holmes special is his ability to focus his attention fully on the people and objects around him, right? That, that he takes in ten times the detail that anyone else takes in. People always credit him with his amazing reasoning abilities, right? They're like, oh, you're so smart, you figure things out that none of us can figure out. And, and Sherlock Holmes in the books and in the shows that have portrayed him regularly goes, no, I'm not. Actually, when you pay attention, it just all makes sense. <laughs> Right? What he's good at isn't figuring things out. What he's good at is paying attention, of studying deeply, of learning about the objects and the people that he's dealing with. Right? This is what makes Sherlock Holmes uh, special. And he says to the people around him, if only you would learn to slow down and pay attention and to study deeply, you too would have seen exactly what I saw. And I love the way that this is portrayed in, in, in the recent BBC series that has been going on for the last while and may have come to an end, sadly. Uh, as, as he's studying things, he walks around, and what you see is you see words popping up all over the place, kind of showing you what it is that he's observing, right? And so you as an audience, you get to kind of watch these things pop up and go, yeah, I didn't even notice that, but now that I see it, I see it coming together, right? And so that's kind of the fun of it, is you're getting to see the clues all pointing around, and then things build up towards that aha moment, when you realize what all of this studying is leading you towards, this realization that your studying helps you understand, right? Again, if I think about the people in your life, try, try studying your spouse or your parents or your children that way, Right? To, to try and understand even the little intricacies of what's going on inside of them. Tell me if that benefits your relationship. I think it does. I think I need to learn that lesson sometimes because I'm terribly uh, uninformed about those types of things. Right? Now, now again, bringing it back to God, I, what I'm arguing here is that knowing God is in part knowing about him, 
who he is, what he's like, what his desires are, what, what types of things he enjoys doing in the world, right? And this means we must study him, that we have to study God, that we must study by paying close attention to what's in the Bible. And again, especially looking at Jesus Christ and studying what does this Christ figure look like? What is he doing? What is he saying? Because, because this is the perfect portrait of God. And we also need to study tradition and history and see what God has done throughout church history, as well as our own experiences. What are the little things God does in our life that help us realize who he is and to pay close attention to those things? Because without it, we miss the most important elements of knowing God and accumulating that knowledge about him. Now, alongside knowledge, we have memory is the second facet of the mind. That we need to accumulate information, but, but if we don't have the ability to store it and to recall it, we're in trouble, right? And, and this, is, this is maybe one of the things we're really guilty of in our culture, because with the internet, we have the ability to learn as much as we want. We can go on the internet and for, for days just get sucked into a vortex of information about things, right? And, and Christianity is no exception. Go on Wikipedia sometime and just look up some of the articles on Christianity and you can click through article after article after article after article just going down a whole hole of information about what Christians believe about God. And yet, we realize none of that is helpful if we're not actually storing it in our minds and able to bring it back when it's important to us, right? Which is what memory is all about. What we do not remember, we don't really know. And again, that's the same thing with the people in our lives and God himself, right? Can, can you imagine if every time you came home after work, you had to reset your entire knowledge about your spouse? I mean, I mean we have people who have that illness of, of, of Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, and that's a terrifying existence, right? And we can see they can find great quality of life still, and yet we know that something has been lost when they can't actually store and recall the, the, the information about loved people in their lives, right? Uh, and, and, and now the question is, how then? How do we store and recall? How do we make sure that what we learn about God, right, is not just going in one ear and out the other? And the answer is repetition. Again, not a, not a fun, not a sexy term, right? You need to repeat it over and over and over and over again, <laughs> Right? This is not something that, you know, seems to be, oh, I was looking for an exciting self-help book, Ben. No, no. Right? You're probably not going to make a million dollars off of this one. But the reality is that it's only in repeating the learning process and repeating the information that we know that we're actually able to really store it and then have it available to us when it matters most. I love Pixar movies. Pixar is easily my favorite kid's studio. When my daughter says she wants to get a movie or rent a movie or watch a movie on Netflix, I'm, I'm always kind of probing her. Huh, what about this Pixar one over here? Right? I, love the, I love what they do. They just have such an imaginative way of portraying the different facets of life. And one of their ones that's not too old at this point, Inside Out, portrays how our emotions and our mind work. And they have some scenes that are trying to portray memory in particular. Right? And, and, and the main characters are walking through these shelves that represent all of the different experiences the person has had, and they, they're, they're represented by different glowing orbs with the emotions that were attached to them. Right? And, and as they're looking, they realize that some of those orbs are gradually fading. Right? 
And, and, and along comes a group of little uh, workers who just kind of pull a whole bunch of memories off the shelf and stuff them in a bag, and they're getting rid of these memories, right? And, and the main character's like, what are you doing? Those are some amazing memories, right? And, 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 and they go, well, yeah, but obviously the person doesn't care about them because they haven't been accessed in a while, right? And right in the middle of this scene where they're getting rid of all of these valuable experiences the person has gone through, in pops one memory in particular that gets sucked right up to the mind center, and it's this little jingle, <laughs> about triple-dent gum, <laughs> right? And, 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 and it plays in their mind, and for those of you who have seen the movie even a couple times, it's probably already playing in your mind, right? The do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, right? And, and, and the key is, this one memory never fades, <laughs> right? That you can lose track of all of the great things you did with your family last week, but you never forget that jingle, <laughs> right? And why is it? Repetition. Right? Because that thing plays over and over and over, first on the TV and then in your brain. Right? And it just keeps on coming up and up and up and up. And so for the rest of your life, you'll remember that jingle. My mom's here today. She can still recite the Big Mac commercial that took place for six months back when she was a teenager. And the Smarties song, right? So these jingles that exist for a very short time, right? Because of the fact that they were repeated so much, your brain just can't help but hold on to these things, right? Well, how does it apply to God? Well, knowing God involves not just learning about him, but remembering him and remembering the things that he has done, right? This is, this is important, and you see all through Scripture that the, this is something that is prioritized. Is don't just know God, but remember him, right? And I think that we have to recognize that to do that requires creating and prioritizing routines that remind us and reinforce the things that we have learned, Right? So this is what we do every Sunday when we come together for communion. Right? Some people would say, why every week? Doesn't that get old? Doesn't that get stuffy? Doesn't it start to feel like just a dry routine? And the answer is, well, yeah, it can. But we don't do it because we want it to be a dry routine. We do it every week because we need reminding. Right? When we, when we, get, when we get reminded, when we get to repeat it over and over again, then it really gets ingrained in our head. This is what's important. Right? Same thing goes with celebrating holidays or creating routines as families or creating a prayer time that you can come back to God in prayer over and over again, right? The routines, routines that we have actually help remind us of the things that are most important. It repeats it over and over again so that hopefully it's available then for us. It's actually stored in our brains and it's able to be recalled when we need it most. And again, going back to this idea that Jesus is the front and center, the full revelation of God, we should especially try and create routines that center us on Jesus Christ. This is who God is, right? We need that. Now, the third facet of the mind is reasoning. This is our ability alongside our knowledge and memory to actually take what we know and to apply it and to make decisions about the world, right? To think through what it is that we have to do and how we should live our lives and what it is that God wants of us, right? And again, I would say in some sense, we don't really know someone or something unless it changes the way we live our lives, right? We know this intuitively, Right? That there are some people who know all about certain things, and you realize, yeah, but you've never actually gone and done that. Right? It's, great. it's great for you to study skydiving until you're blue in the face, but until you've jumped out of a plane, right? you've taken that knowledge and, and actually used it to make a decision by jumping out of this thing, you, you really haven't known what it's like to skydive. Right? 
And, and, and so this is a key element of our relationship with God as well. And the question again becomes, well, how? How do we, how do we, how do we practice reasoning? How is it that we apply our knowledge? And, and the answer is, there's no alternative to deep reflection. Right? That we actually have to make space in our day, both in terms of time and in terms of mental energy, uh, to stop and to really think things through carefully. Right? And this, this, this includes big-picture reflection, like how am I living my life as a whole? We need opportunities for that. But it also involves even just making basic decisions on a day-to-day basis. If you wake up and the very first thing that you do is grab your phone and start sucking in the information about the news, right? You, you've actually just cost yourself an opportunity to stop and say, what should I really do with this half hour that I have before I have to get ready for work? Right? And maybe just taking even a minute or two to stop and say, what is most important? That creating that space and reflecting actually gives us an opportunity to know God in a different way because he begins to shape the way that we live our lives. Now, going back to my favorite media, as you can tell, we're, we're, we're really delving into this here today. Um, uh, one of my favorite characters, probably the only one who can really challenge my love of Sherlock Holmes, is Samwise Gamgee. He's a secondary character in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and, and, and in particular, from the books, there are two scenes that just grab my heart the first time I read them, and I come back to over and over again in my thinking. There's one scene where his best friend has been taken captive by a whole bunch of enemy soldiers. And he has this magical ring that they've been carrying around with them. And everybody keeps on talking about how much this magical ring would give them power and the ability to do whatever they want. And we've seen a lot of characters get in trouble because they're trying to get a hold of that thing. And now he's got it, and his friend's captured, and he's standing up on a hilltop looking over it, and he thinks to himself, I could slip this thing on, and I could become this amazing warrior that nobody can see and nobody can touch, and I could just go in there and just have a rampage and destroy those enemy soldiers, be the greatest warrior ever. And as he stops and he really pauses to reflect, he realizes, but that would be completely untrue to who I am and to what I know is best in this situation, right? And so he slips it back into his pocket, and instead he goes and he sneaks his way through the place and tries to get his friend out by using covert means instead, right? And the second scene is not coming very late after that, but, but he's in the middle of this enemy territory, and now they're trying to get to a place where they can destroy this ring because then they don't want the enemy to have it, right? And his friend is, is so consumed by wanting to put on this ring, he's just, he's just fading fast, Right? And, and, and at one point, Sam picks up his friend and actually slings him over his shoulders and begins trudging along this dark place, trying to carry his friend to their ultimate destination. Right? And this is tiring. And eventually, he collapses. And he's wondering, how the heck am I ever going to do this? I am going to get caught. They're going to take away this ring. The enemy's going to win all of this. And in this moment, he looks up at the sky, and he sees the stars that are out there. And he has this moment of clarity where he realizes, you know what? Even if evil wins today, it's not going to win ultimately. That there's something beyond this world, something good out there, something that's greater than anything that's going on here in this place. And I know that even if I fail, it's not going to be the ultimate failure. Right? And then ultimately, he is able to get back on his feet. And with that hope in mind, is able to make it the rest of the journey. Right? Now, in both of these scenes... What is it that takes place? Well, he pauses and reflects rather than making a decision instinctively, right? And he really takes what he knows about the world. 
He knows this ring is evil. He knows that it will destroy him and distort who he is if he puts it on his finger. He knows that there's something beyond him that's greater and better and that he has to follow and serve, not just, not just the story that's immediately in front of him. And he, he actually applies all of that knowledge and makes the right decision. And he becomes the only character in the book who actually avoids getting sucked into this temptation, right? This is the type of reasoning that we need to be able to have when it comes to our faith, especially when we're facing circumstances that threaten to pull us in a direction we shouldn't go, right? So how do we do this with God? Well, we need to regularly ask, what difference does it make to know that God is present in this situation? Right? We just need to make space for ourselves to ask that question over and over and over again. What difference does it make to know that God is present in this situation? And I think the better we get at asking that question and really thinking through what difference does that make, the more we will be able to line up our life with what God wants for us instead of just instinctively responding in, in a way that's not really healthy. In this sense, we develop a gospel lens. We get to see things through Christ, right? And, and so not only do we know God, but we actually know what life with God begins to look like as we reason in this way. So we've talked about knowledge and memory and reasoning. And I, I suspect that probably not all of this is new. Some of these elements might go a little deeper into some of these concepts, but these are all things that we, we do talk about here in the church. But the last facet of the mind, imagination, may be the one that we overlook the most in, in a conservative evangelical context. Right? That we, we talk a lot about thinking clearly, but sometimes we miss the fact that our minds don't just think, they also dream. They also imagine, right? And I, I would again put forward, we don't really know someone or something until they actually affect the way that we think in this sense, the way that we dream and imagine the future, right? I, I like to think of if we really know someone or something, it's going to invade our imagination, right? It'll just start popping up in the way that we dream about things. We can't help including those things in our ideal future, right? This is, this is how you know you're head over heels in love with somebody. It's not just when you're like, oh, I want to build my day around them, but actually you begin picturing the future with them, right? Wow, like I'm willing to go through all that with that person? That's crazy, right? And the key discipline here is actually dreaming itself, right? Giving yourself permission to dream and to allow yourself to imagine what it is that God is doing, to allow ourselves to drift into the world of possibilities rather than made, remaining tethered in the brute facts. I have another character I really love. And actually, I have a confession. I might have lied when I said that the only person who challenges Sherlock Holmes is Samwise Gamgee, because I like this guy a lot too, right? His name is Yoda. Some of you might have heard of him, right? He's from a series called Star Wars. And, and in the series Star Wars, the main character is seeking out training in what's called the Force, which is a spiritual component of the universe that binds everything together and allows for magical abilities, right? That people who are trained in the force are able to lift things with their minds or they're able to see the future or things like that, right? And, and, and he's looking for training in this and at first he runs into this little green creature that seems really, really annoying, right? And he just keeps on pestering the main character and, and causing trouble for him. And then it turns out that's actually the master who can train him, right? And that's kind of the fun twist of, of the second movie in the series, right? And, and in this, then this guy takes him and starts training him and pushing him and challenging him to think differently about the world, right? And there's this one scene where, where the main character's spaceship has sunk into mud. And, and, and the Yoda, the character, tells him, well, why don't you try and use the force to pull this thing out, 
right? And the main character tries to and just utterly fails. In fact, he ends up making the situation worse because it sinks deeper into the mud, right? And, and then this little green character, uh, get, he, he takes the anger of the main character and he's sitting there and then, and then he just pulls the ship out without even thinking about it, right? Boom, just picks it up, moves it to the ground, right? And he challenges the guy, right? The reason why you weren't able to do it is because you weren't really thinking that you could, right? This is, this is the challenge that he issues for him. Now, what makes this idea of the Force so appealing? I mean, this is an appealing idea. Uh, any of us who saw Star Wars as kids, or maybe even as adults, have all tried to move that thing, right? As a kid, you, you, well, maybe if I just do it, the, the pencil will come to me, right? And, and, and this is something that just, like, we, we kind of get excited about, this idea of the Force. Well, I, I think the reason it's so appealing the reason why it excites us is because it does touch on an element of our reality, right? Which is that our imagination shapes what is possible and what we see as possible, right? Now, all that George Lucas really did was take that principle and extend it into the physical world, right? That, 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 that our imagination really does shape how we live our lives and what we do with each other and the types of communities that we build. Our imagination shapes an awful lot of how we live our lives, what is possible in this world. It's just that he extended it to the idea that, well, maybe I can imagine this thing floating and it'll actually float, right? Now, now, now I, I want to be really careful. Don't hear me saying that, you know, the, the idea is that if you imagine something hard enough, if you picture something hard enough, it will happen, right? There's kind of a philosophy that's built that way that thinks if you just visualize what you want out of life, it will happen to you, it will come to you, right? I, I don't think that's a Christian idea, right? Our, the thing that determines our life is not ultimately us. It is God himself, right? But, but what I am saying is that often we limit God, that often we fall into mental traps where we box God in and think, well, here's how he will act and here's how he won't act. And in so doing, we actually dictate how we then will live our lives without realizing we're missing out on a whole lot of possibilities that God might have had in store for us. Right? That's what I'm getting at with this. Our imagination shapes our possibilities. Right? And, and, and we need to actually have a godly imagination. We need to dream dreams that line up with God's version of reality. Right? And this is the value of Christian artists, in part. It is wonderful that we have Christians who make beautiful art and who, who, who love to portray Christian realities in, in both visual art and in movies and in song and things like that that can, can open up our minds and hearts to those possibilities. But it's also something that we can practice through imaginative prayer, which is actually a, a, a style of prayer that people have advocated for within Christianity. That, that as you're going about your day-to-day -day life, you can actually imagine God doing some of the things that you know are possible and that he might have even promised to do, and, and that can actually open yourself up to new possibilities within situations. Imagine Jesus actually doing what you ask when you pray. Again, not, the idea not to be like, this will make it happen, but imagine if you're praying for somebody and you imagine God coming down and healing that, that wound that they've got. Doesn't that excite you? <laughs> Doesn't that invigorate you to think, yeah, this is actually a possibility that God is hearing my prayer and this very moment is coming into this situation and healing up their knee, right? That's an exciting thing. I think it would make us pray with more vigor. Or imagine Jesus entering your neighbor's home with you when you go over for a casual visit, right? What does that do when you think, hey, Jesus is entering this doorway with me. I'm entering into the house and so is Jesus, right? Does that change the way that you converse with that person? 
Does that, does that excite you that now I'm here with God Almighty himself, able to speak truth and hope into this situation? Or imagine your city as you drive around Peterborough. And imagine what it would be like if people in Peterborough just started loving each other the way that Jesus tells us to love each other. Does that change the way that you might imagine your city and try and contribute to the future life of your city? If you think, wow, what a city this would be like if people just started living that way. Right? It might, it might motivate you to be different when you're passing by the homeless person on the street. Or it might motivate you to be a little different when, when, when you end up in a, a fender bender with somebody, right? And you think, well, I'm going to get out of this car and just let them have it. And then to think, oh, well, wait a minute. What if this whole city was full of people who didn't do that to each other? Right? That might change the way that we see our possibilities and live our lives, right? Again, the point here is not, hey, you know, we need to imagine something and then God will magically make it happen. The point here is, let's actually imagine big things happening in our lives that, and, and, and open ourselves up to the world of possibilities of what it, God can do. And I think if we allow God to invade our imagination that way, if we practice dreaming and allow him to shape the way that we imagine the world around us, then I think actually that will change the way that we live our lives. That is part of what it means to know God. So again, if I have to summarize all of this, Jesus' mission was to allow us to know God fully as God's perfect representative and somebody who can shape all of these different aspects of our minds, right? That Jesus came so that we can accumulate knowledge about God. Jesus came so that we can remember God. Jesus came so that we can reason in a godly way. Jesus came so that we can have a godly imagination, right? And, And all of this ultimately brings us back to where I started, which is the point of this summer series. My hope for the series is that by studying what Jesus taught closely and by hearing over and over some of these themes come out in his teaching, then our reasoning and our imagination will be shaped to become more Christ-like and Christ-centered. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this chance to gather here again this morning. Thank you for sending your son to be the perfect representative, the perfect portrait of what you are like, and for giving us the chance to allow our our knowledge, our memories, our reasoning, our imagination to be shaped by you in a different way. And Father, I pray that none of us would neglect this call to know you and your son, whom you sent. In Jesus' name, amen.